0: Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. In the wake of recent events here in the United States involving the senseless murder of Black men and protests of police brutality, I wanted there to be an episode that helps support Black people and the Black Lives Matter movement without distracting from it or talking over Black voices. I agree with those who have expressed sentiments that white people Trying to unpack and explain racism they do not and never will experience is voyeuristic and self-serving. In no way do I want to perpetuate that harmful narrative. There are many things we can do as white people to help the black community. There are protests to attend, petitions to sign, black-owned businesses to support, and charities to donate to. I will include a lot of resources related to actions that we can take in the episode resources file for this episode, which will be linked in the episode notes. I'm not an expert in racism, prejudice, bias, or privilege. There are a lot of black authors who have written excellent books and articles covering those topics that I absolutely recommend everyone read. Those will also be in the resources file. As white people, we should be educating ourselves with this material that has been made with thousands and thousands of hours of emotional labor, We should not stand back and demand black people teach us about the racist systems we benefit from and the racism we allow to continue in our country and around the world. As a wise black journalist said, true violence is the white liberal who places the emotional, physical, and intellectual labor upon the back of black Americans as they mourn. It's our job now to do the work, to educate ourselves, to seek out those resources on our own, to not burden our Black friends, colleagues, and citizens with work we need to take on ourselves. I want to focus on a part of this process that is directly related to the podcast, murder charges, or lack thereof in some cases. Some of these murders by the police of Black people are followed by criminal charges. In some cases, they are murder charges, but in other cases, they are lesser charges or No charges at all. The easy answer to why there are so many different charges for seemingly the same act is complicated. Systemic racism plays a really big part in the decision to not punish or prosecute these police murderers, but for the ones that do see charges, what do they mean? In the case of George Floyd, why did they get upgraded? I covered types and degrees of murder in episode 5. But I received a request from a student the other day to discuss the murder charges specifically in the George Floyd murder case. I decided to look into a number of these murders where charges were filed to help explain some of the differences in these murder charges in the context of current events. I will not be discussing the details of those murders, just the charges associated with them. Black people live in a world where there is constant violence against them. There's no need for me or anyone else to subject them to reliving that violence. We need to be part of the solution here. So in an effort to respect the black community, I won't be discussing those details today. Today, with the George Floyd murder in particular, we have the benefit of video evidence. This is directly linked to the charges against Derek Chauvin, his murderer. Those charges started with third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. Now third degree murder is not incredibly common, it only exists in three states, Florida, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania. It can include felony murder or what's called depraved heart murder. It carries a maximum sentence of 25 years in Minnesota, where George Floyd was murdered. Now in this case, we're referring to the depraved heart definition. The new quote unquote upgraded charge added was unintentional second degree murder. So yes, murder is an upgrade from manslaughter, but the unintentional bit is important to remember. In Minnesota, intentional second-degree murder could carry a sentence of 25 and a half years, while unintentional second-degree murder only carries a sentence of 12 and a half years maximum. The three other officers involved in Georgia's murder were later charged with aiding and abetting both second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. So let's unpack this a little bit more. I've seen a lot of articles saying that Chauvin's charges were upgraded when that would imply that they're harsher. Now the unintentional bit that was added to the murder charge, it gives prosecutors a bit more chance at getting a conviction. So you and I, and most people would agree that the basis for proof beyond a reasonable doubt of second degree murder is undeniable in this case but juries can be unpredictable. In Minnesota, second degree murder can be charged in two different cases. The first being causing death with intent of causing death, but without premeditation, or causing death while committing a drive-by shooting. So it's really difficult in this case, and in many cases involving police committing murders, to prove premeditation, and that's why We rarely see first-degree murder charges for these types of cases, unless there's undeniable proof. The unintentional bit that was added to the second-degree murder charge indicates that the person caused the death of the victim without intent while committing a felony offense with force or violence. It also applies when death is caused without intent while intentionally inflicting bodily harm when the victim is restrained. That last bit applies directly to the George Floyd case. They may have a hard time proving intent in this case, so they added the unintentional bit, which should have the best chance of holding up in court. Finally, just to talk about the second degree manslaughter charges, um, because when the charges were upgraded, the initial charges didn't just go away. They all apply. So for the second degree manslaughter charge in Minnesota there are five possible means one of which you have to prove to uphold this charge and I'm quoting this directly from the statute itself so the means under which second degree manslaughter can be upheld are means including causing the death of another one by the person's culpable negligence whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes chances of causing death or great bodily harm. Two, by shooting another with a firearm or another deadly weapon as a result of negligently believing the other to be an animal. Three, by setting a spring gun, pitfall, deadfall, snare, or other weapon or device. Four, by negligently or intentionally permitting any animal to run uncontrolled off the owner's property or negligently failing to keep it properly confined. And finally, five, by committing a violation of neglect or child endangerment and murder in the first, second or third degree is not committed. Now clearly in this case, the first condition would apply where there was pretty, a pretty good amount of culpable negligence and a disregard for the risk of death in that situation. That comes with a sentence of no more than 10 years So overall, the most he could be sentenced with by the standards of what he's been charged with is 25 years for the third-degree murder charge, which I think is a little ironic because that was one of the initial charges. And when they say upgrade, murder is an upgrade, but the sentencing time is half of what the original third-degree manslaughter charge was. And I think that's where some of the confusion comes from, especially if you're not familiar with the laws of every particular state, which I certainly am not, and I'm reading a lot about Minnesota law these days, but it's easy to think that going from third to second or manslaughter to murder is an upgrade, that, that it would come with some sort of harsher sentence, but in this case, under Minnesota law, it doesn't. Now, we've seen other cases slip through on technicalities or not having enough proof beyond a reasonable doubt, so having charges that have ample evidence to back them up is really important if we want these murderers to be held accountable. There are a few more cases I want to touch on in this episode. Uh, One of them has to do directly with police brutality and neglect. One of them has to do with pseudo-police brutality, um, but has to do with a security guard, not a formal police officer. And the third um, has to do with citizens, um, but it involves citizens arrest. It's a very recent case that's going through the courts right now. So I will touch on those three cases and talk about the legal charges um, that were filed against those perpetrators. The first is the Freddie Gray case. Freddie Gray was arrested in Baltimore, Maryland in April of 2015. He was charged at the time with having an allegedly illegal knife. His subsequent murder sparked major protests in downtown Baltimore, and after his funeral, the unrest in the city was palpable, leading to looting and burning of a local CVS. This precipitated a state of emergency In Baltimore, they summoned the National Guard and had a nightly curfew for nearly a week. Witnesses claimed officers used excessive force on Freddie during his arrest, and it became clear through the investigation that his death was the result of negligence in following safety procedures. There had been a new department policy put into place merely a week before Freddie's arrest as a result of other transportation-related injuries to people in police custody. Though there is no video evidence at the time of the officer's neglect directly, prosecution was ultimately pursued. Along with failing to follow those safety protocols, officers also failed to establish probable cause in his arrest, and officers were subsequently charged with false imprisonment. The police alleged he was carrying this illegal switchblade when he was in fact carrying a legal sized pocket knife, so his arrest wasn't even warranted in the first place. The medical examiner ruled his death as a homicide. They said it couldn't be ruled as an accident because the injuries were sustained during transport. Of the six officers involved, three were charged with manslaughter and the driver of the police transport van was charged with second-degree depraved heart murder, which would have come with a sentence of 30 years in prison. The manslaughter and assault charges would come in with a maximum of 10 years in prison. Depraved heart murder refers to a murder where there's no explicit intent to kill. There's a depraved indifference to human life where actions result in death, though there was no explicit intention to kill the victim at the time. The act committed usually carries a high risk of causing serious harm or even death. And when you ignore that risk, it demonstrates that you have a depraved indifference to human life resulting in death. Unfortunately, in this particular case, the state prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, didn't handle the cases well at all. They separated all six officers. Um, They decided not to prosecute them together. They kept them in the city. Um, and it, just the way that it was handled was was very poor. One of the officers was acquitted of all charges. The other three officers had all charges dropped at a certain point. I think it was about a year after they were charged. And though the arrest and charges against the officers were warranted, some critics believe Mosby overcharged the officers in, in an effort to appease the protesters looking for justice. But in doing so, she created cases that were incredibly difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, where justice would never be served. I think one of the officers is back on the police force in Baltimore. Nearly two years after Freddie Gray's death, a federal judge even allowed the officers to sue Mosby, the prosecutor, for malicious prosecution, defamation, and invasion of privacy. There's a lot to learn from this case, from prosecuting police to organizing protests. And the murder of Freddie Gray set the stage for where we are right now. It really paved the path for accountability of police officers and demand for reform that we so desperately need. But we're sort of in the same boat. The second case I wanna touch on has to do with a, a private security guard, but police tangential, someone in a position of power who has a license to carry a lethal weapon. This is the case of Trayvon Martin. George Zimmerman murdered Trayvon Martin in February of 2012 in Sanford, Florida. Trayvon was only 17 years old at the time. He was murdered in a gated community where he was visiting his father and his father's fiance at her townhouse. He had gone out to buy Skittles and a drink And was returning to the townhouse when he encountered Zimmerman. Zimmerman was part of the gated community's neighborhood watch and he was a volunteer. After being in police custody, Zimmerman was released and after protests erupted following this release, he was charged with second-degree murder. In Florida, second degree murder is the killing of a human being when perpetrated by an act imminently dangerous to another and evincing a depraved mind regardless of human life, although without any premeditated design to affect the death of any particular individual. Zimmerman was allegedly injured in his pursuit of Trayvon, and he claimed self-defense at the trial. Though there was no video evidence of the murder and only a handful of inconsistent witness statements the jury did end up acquitting him. Now the last case isn't really a case of police violence per se, but the pretenses under which this murder was perpetrated are quite antiquated. Uh, It's what's known as citizen's arrest. So in Georgia, a private citizen can arrest someone if the crime was witnessed by that person or within his immediate knowledge. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, can't anybody claim anything is within their immediate knowledge? And you would be correct. This law is incredibly problematic. Further, if the crime is a felony, and in this case, burglary is a felony, then the citizen can legally stop someone from escaping if they have reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. This is the case of Ahmaud Arbery. This is another case where the video evidence made a real difference between racists getting away with murder and charges being filed. Once the video was released, which took a while, uh, the flimsy self-defense argument crumbled for the McMichaels. Now the McMichaels, the father and son uh, who were stalking Ahmad, were charged with murder and assault and they, they claimed that he fit the description of someone who had been in the neighborhood uh, committing burglaries. At this point, there's been no further information about the type of murder they're being charged for, but the evidence that exists within and beyond the video seemed to support premeditation and possibly first-degree murder. I believe they devised a plan and hunted Ahmad down with the intention of killing him. Further, there is enough evidence in this particular case to prosecute the McMichaels with hate crimes. Though only at the federal level, appallingly, and I can't believe this is true, Georgia is one of the few states with no hate crime statutes. So you're also wondering, there was a guy who was filming the whole thing, what happened to him? Okay. He's also being charged with felony murder and attempted false imprisonment by boxing Ahmad in with his vehicle. And there's evidence of of him doing so in the video that he turned into police. His name is William Bryan. And in Georgia, felony murder is defined as a killing caused by commission of an underlying felony and it doesn't require an intention to kill. The minimum sentence for that is life with a chance of parole. Choosing what charges to file against offenders, especially police officers who are offenders, is a really important decision. It's not just about what the right decision is, but what decision is the most supportable? What can we prove beyond a reasonable doubt? Because it makes the difference between someone spending years in prison and being held accountable for your actions and someone walking free. And I would employ you when you hear about police officers who are being charged in the murder of civilians, especially black civilians, to look up those specific murder charges. What do they mean in the state that they're filed in? How many years could come along with it? And how defensible is that charge? Because the laws in every state are a little bit different, and they're all nuanced in a particular way for that state. So, especially in the George Floyd case where we see people constantly saying that the charges were upgraded, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Because while murder is an upgrade, as I said before from manslaughter, The sentencing that goes along with it isn't an upgrade. I encourage all of my listeners, especially those of us who are white, to seek out as many resources as you can, to educate yourselves about the history of racism, not just in the United States, but across the world. Read books written by Black Lives, watch movies made by and about Black Lives, and support your local Black community. I have many resources available if you're at all interested in learning more about the Black Lives Matter movement and what we can do to support Black people right now. They're all listed in the episode resources for today's episode, linked in the show notes. The best thing we can do right now is to listen, to learn, and to take the appropriate action. Thank you for listening to episode 18. I'll be back on schedule next week with a brand new episode. I took a bit longer with this particular episode to gather the resources and do the research necessary for this episode because of how important the content is. Hit that subscribe button so you have access to the newest episodes right when they're released. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the forensic filescaptivate Dot fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is the Forensic at gmail.com. Please leave me a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more amazing people like you can find us. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in this episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young.